If you were to sit down and make a list of circumstances where you feel pressure or where stress rises up in you, what would be on that list, I wonder? I think for many of us, finances would be on that list, making a wise decision about how to handle our finances. Or if you're a parent, that's probably on your list. Pressures rise up when we try to deal wisely with our kids as parents. Or if you work inside or outside of the home, chances are pretty good that you can feel some pressures there and how to relate with the boss or how to relate with other coworkers or when the work itself just sort of piles up and starts to overwhelm you. But how do you deal with that when it comes your way? Are you one who's able to handle it, take it pretty much in stride? Or for you, is it something that kind of really starts to build up in you and and then the pressure just has to be released somehow? Well, I've actually got some security footage, some security camera footage from some actual workplaces and people responding when the pressures were building up on them. I thought you might be interested in it, so take a look. So it turns out that not everybody handles pressure and stress all that well in the workplace or in other places as well. I'd love to be able to say, the rest of us, we're all immune from that. Pathway doesn't have to worry about that. People of Pathway don't have to deal with that. And I doubt that you've ever taken a sledgehammer to your work computer, but in a way, didn't it seem strangely therapeutic? (laughs) Might be interesting to give it a try at least just once, right? The problem is, that as much as we say, well, maybe that's not the best way to handle it, the fact of the matter is there are going to be pressures and stresses. We're not gonna get to the place in our lives, whether it be at work, in our finances, or in our parenting, or anywhere else, where the pressures just go away, and no longer do we have to deal with it. So the question isn't, how do we get rid of stress, or how do we get rid of pressures, but how do we deal with it when it rises up? And what are some things that we can do? What are some some tricks that we can learn perhaps to assist us when those times crash on us so that we might not get just taken down a road that embarrasses us or maybe causes a strife to increase in the family. If we deal with pressure in the wrong way, that can happen. Or we've seen work relationships tank or we've seen family problems that rise up and friends that just start to leave and go the other way and the blessings that might have come are all of a sudden out the door. And, and these sorts of things, they just keep, keep coming and it's gonna keep coming. So what do we do? We need some tools to help us on our way through these circumstances so that we would be able to thrive instead of crash and burn. 
And thankfully for us, today we're actually going to be looking at a group of people who came to know a little something about dealing with stress and pressures. The people we're going to look at are the people of the nation of Israel. These are people who lived for over 400 years as a nation in slavery. Do you think they knew a little something about pressures and about stresses that would come up in their lives? There's no doubt about that. They certainly did. And as it turns out, they didn't handle themselves all that well all the time with dealing with the things that came their way. But even by looking at the way that they do respond, though not all of it's positive by any stretch, we can learn some tips and some tricks to assist us as we make our way forward for when the pressure is on. That's what we're calling this message. As we continue on in our Moses series, we're almost done with it. Next week, we're going to wrap it all up. But Moses leading through doubt and deliverance. Today, we are going to be starting in Exodus chapter 15. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. Or if you want to use one of those that we are providing for you under the seats, you can find it on one of these page numbers if that would be helpful for you. Or you can go online and find it on our app, number of places. You might also want to grab that outline that's available for you in the pathway notes that you received as you came in. Exodus chapter 15, by the timeline that we have been looking at, we're at 1446 B.C. So this happened a a very long time ago. And what's transpired to this point is that Israel has made its way out of slavery in Egypt. They had the, the miracles of the plagues. The Israelites came out through Passover and then the miracle of the Red Sea. They make their way on across the Red Sea. And now they set off into the desert or into the wilderness, the next step of the journey that God had in store for them, which in and of itself would have been pressure filled in and of itself would have had stresses all its own. Just think about traveling with a couple million people and multitudes of flocks and herds and trying to make your way in a certain direction together with all of these people. That would have been testing. That would have been trying. It was very harsh conditions there in the desert as well. And on top of that, you just have all of this change. And we know a change can bring pressure into a person's Life. We've all experienced that. But that doesn't mean just because those pressures have come that they need to respond in unhealthy ways. They could very much respond in healthy ways. In fact, they should have responded in healthy ways because there were so many benefits that they had already come to experience. And they didn't figure all of that out as quickly and as well as they should have. But that's actually the first key for, that we see through them that will help us also, I believe, when it comes to dealing with the pressures that come our way is that we would look around, that we would see the good. We would start there, that we would see the good. The Israelites had a lot of good things going for them. And to their credit, as they got started, they were able to see the good. When they first come across the Red Sea, the first thing they do is they celebrate. In fact, they have this long song in Exodus chapter 15. Let me just show you how it starts. It gives the whole flavor of it. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He is hurled into the sea, which is a great start. And then the rest of the chapter talks about them going off into the desert and into the wilderness. Now, desert and wilderness are synonymous in this case. Carolyn and I had the opportunity to travel on the the same sorts of roads that they were on as they made their way on down from where they started into the desert down toward 
Mount Sinai. Now, a lot of times when we think about the desert, we think of this large expanse of sand that just kind of goes on for as far as you can see, but that's not what this topography is like at all. In fact, you can see some of our pictures here, some of the topography that we were driving through. This is what this area that they were in at this point looked like. There were places, other spots in Egypt that were that vast expanse of sand, but not this. This is it. It's dry, it's barren, it's rugged. But every once in a while, you would come across this scene, let's make this one bigger, where you can see that there's just sort of this wide expanse then amongst all of the rugged outcroppings. And what I couldn't help but think of when we were there and we would see a site like this is just rows and rows and rows and rows of Israelite tents as they would make their way through the desert or through the wilderness. They would stop on occasion and they would camp and they would need big, vast open spaces. In fact, there's a spot just right across from the base of Mount Sinai where there's this huge, vast expanse and you could just imagine them there during that time, those months that they were there at Mount Sinai. More about that here in a little bit. So the Israelites had begun their journey and they're just a little bit into it and there's a shortage of water. And so what do they do? They complain. Actually, the next three books of the Bible are pretty much all about Israel complaining. You see them again and again and again. They complain, in this case, because there's no water. And they find some water, but they don't like the water because the water's too bitter. So they complain and they cry out and God responds. He comes through for them. In fact, here's what the text says. It says, then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. It was another opportunity for the Israelites, don't miss this, to see the good, to see the provision of the Lord for them. And they're just kind of getting started. And and after the water issue, now they've got a food issue because they left Egypt. They had some food that they took out of the land, but now that food is running out. And where are we going to get some food? And so they cry out to God and God again provides for them. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. What's that bread called? Manna. It's called manna. You know what that means? It means what is it? Really, it means what is it? I'm not making that up. What is it? They didn't know. They'd never seen before. The text tells us it was kind of like coriander seed, which you might not know what that is either, but here you can take a look at it. And they'd take it and they'd grind it and they'd, they'd bake it or they'd boil it or they'd cook it in all sorts of different ways. But it's the provision of God for them in their circumstance. And what the Lord would do is he would just each day, he would just provide it. It would just be there. The dew sort of evaporates and, and there it is all over the camp in front of their tents, everywhere. You, I'm sure, know that grocery stores nowadays are offering to deliver their groceries right to your front door. They say this is a new innovation. No, it's not. God's been doing that since like 3,500 years ago. He's been providing for his people in awesome ways. And if they were paying attention, they could see the good that God is bringing more good on them right to their doorstep. Then the nation traveled on from there in the direction of Mount Sinai. God had previously spoken with Moses at Mount Sinai in the burning bush. And as a part of that encounter, he said to Moses, there will be a day when you, at this point, Israel is still in slaves, as, as slaves in Egypt. He says, there will be a day. You're gonna be back here 
at Mount Sinai with the freed Israelite nation and you are going to worship here at this mountain. And now through the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, God is leading his people right there in the direction of Mount Sinai. Now, it's not that they didn't take some breaks along the way. There were several times when they would stop and they would set up camp. There's the pillar of fire by night, so sometimes they just kept on going. But otherwise, they would stop and they would go ahead and they'd camp at a, at a particular place and they'd stay there and then they'd go on. This is the way that we traveled when I was a kid. My dad would pile us in the car and we'd drive five or 600 miles and then we'd stop just soon enough to set up the tent or in the days we were living, really living in luxury, the pop-up. And uh, we'd cook dinner and then we'd spend the night and then we'd get up early in the morning and we'd strike camp and off we'd go another 500, 600 miles and we'd do the whole thing over again. There weren't any Marriott's on our trips. There weren't any Howard Johnson's, Hojo's, remember those, any of you? Um, we kids, we were just kind of longing, can't we just stay at a good Motel 6 or something? Which I realize is an oxymoron, good Motel 6, right? But uh, we were hoping for something like that. I told somebody this story not all that long ago, and they said, that's how we do our traveling also. I said, no, it's not. You have an RV. That's completely a different story. It is not the same thing. All right, so they were on their way. They were camping along their journey. So the Israelites journey on, they set up camp, not every night, some nights, but getting into the third month of their journey, they arrive at Mount Sinai, finally. They get there. Mount Sinai is a beautiful mountain, is 8,000 feet in elevation, and we very much had that high on our list of things we wanted to see while we were there. And not just see Mount Sinai, but to climb Mount Sinai, and we had the opportunity to do that. But to be there, um, it's so far to get into the desert area where Mount Sinai is, you kind of have to do it as an overnight, and there's some very basic accommodations. I mean, you saw the topography there. There's some basic accommodations that they have created, and we stayed at one of those, but we knew what we were in for as soon as we walked into the room, because the first thing to greet us was this can, which if you can read it, says, Flying Insects Killer. And it didn't take us long to figure out why it was there. Imagine walking into your hotel room and there's the flying insects killer. Well, there are no harsh winters there either to kill off all the bugs, so they just grow bigger. But as it worked out, we weren't in the room all that long anyway because in order to keep to our timeline, we actually had to climb Mount Sinai in the middle of the night. And so we arrived at the mountain at about 11 p.m. and we climbed until 2 a.m. to get up to the summit of the mountain. And while it was up there, it was fascinating just to, just to think of where I was and, and the things that had transpired on Mount Sinai. Here you can see a picture of the summit of the mountain. It's a beautiful mountain. This obviously is not in the middle of the night. This is just a different photo from somewhere else, but uh, you can see it there. But while we're up there, it's like we're reading the passages of Mount Sinai, of Moses going up, of God descending onto the mountain and meeting with Moses there in that place and giving him the Ten Commandments and what have you. And 
And I was there and I'm reading these passages and I'm praying for family and for circumstances and for you and for pathway. It was very special. I mean, it was a, a time to seek to meet God just as Moses did. Now, of course, we can encounter God and pray and meet with God anywhere at all. It's not limited to geography, but it was a great experience to be up there. And then there's time to climb back down the mountain, had a flashlight just to kind of see the way, though it was also um, beautiful because it was still dark, though there was this amazing full moon that was illuminating the mountain and the other mountains that were near it while we were there. So it was a pretty spectacular experience to say the least. But as for Moses, we tend to get the idea that, well, Moses went to Sinai and he went up and he came down, or maybe a couple of times. But if you actually read the text, Moses was constantly going up and down Mount Sinai. He was meeting with God. He was experiencing God. God was descending to him, which is another opportunity for the people to see the good because they'd see the cloud come down and then the next thing they know, Moses comes out of the cloud or Moses comes down off the mountain and he's got a word from God. Just another reminder that God was meeting with them and providing for them again and again and again. And part of that was he gave a covenant to Moses to declare to the people. And here's what it said in Exodus 19 now. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob the Israelites, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. More reminder of the good that they could see. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." There was no doubt that God had been providing for his people, that he had a plan for his people, and the people only needed to look at all of the things that were happening and the words of God and the activities of God to see the good and to do so that whenever the pressures would rise, whenever the stresses would mount up, whenever they'd start to wonder, is God with us or is there good things happening here or we've just been cut off, they would be reminded, they'd be able to see the good and they would have that perspective. I would give them perspective. Of course, we also find ourselves in circumstances where pressures are are rising up and when it sort of seems that doubt and discouragement comes over us. Do you ever get in a spot where it just kind of feels like everything is going wrong? And when that happens, it's like one negative thing can overwhelm a multitude of positive things, but it just seems that things are bad and maybe they just kind of seem to be spiraling downward. Well, this is a word for us also. When those pressures are mounting that we might get snowed under, that we would remind ourselves of the good that God has provided for us. And for all of us, there is so much that he has done on our behalf. There are things that we can look at and, and reflect on. There's family and there are friends and, and there is, home and there's life itself and there's health and and there's church and relationships and and on and on and on we could go and I'd encourage you actually to do just that to try that exercise that you would write down the things that you are grateful to God for the good that he has done in your life the good that you have seen around you and that you just might tuck that in your Bible and when you open up your Bible maybe there's something new to go ahead and add to that list to use as a reminder. Maybe for you it'd be better on the notes on your phone or something to put them there. However it works for you, but that you might actually do that exercise so that when the circumstances come that would put the pressure on you that cause you to think about throwing in the towel or giving up or wondering whether or not God is even present, that you might remind yourself through the good of the fact that God is with you. 
That is a great benefit or would have been a great benefit for the Israelites if only they would have done so. But as many good things as there were for them to reflect on, they continued to sort of turn their back on it and turn the other way. So there's another step that is available to them that is also a benefit to us. A second thing, a second key in dealing with our circumstances when the pressure is on, and that's to stay focused, all right? To stay focused. This was one of the Israelites' biggest weaknesses. They had experienced the blessing of God over and over and over again, but they proved that they've got a very short memory. It was only three days after the last of the plagues, the Passover happens, they experience tremendous blessing. Just three days later, they're ready to throw in the towel on God, say, we should just go back to Egypt. Then they cross the Red Sea, and they're just a few days down the road, and they're ready to throw in the towel again. They're grumbling and they're complaining and they are not staying focused on the fact that God has provided for them and will continue to do so. They complain and they doubt. They complain that their food was too boring, that their water was too scarce, that their living conditions were too cramped, that there was no Wi-Fi for their phones, or whatever you could complain about, they were complaining. They'd forgotten the power and the provision of God. And no doubt, this is part of the reason why God gives to them the law, why he gives them the ordinances that he wants them to know and to have and to live by. So God himself writes the law. We refer to it sometimes as the Ten Commandments, which was sort of the the kingpin of all of that. And there were some other ordinances that, that came along with that. But the people had demonstrated that they couldn't remember And so God says, here, for your blessing, let me give these to you. And that's exactly what it was for. Some people think the Ten Commandments, they're just like a divine killjoy list, just God trying to ruin all of my fun. But it's not that at all. It's a divine code of ethics that God gives to us. And if we would use it and live by it, it would lead us to a place of health and harmony with God and with one another. That's what he desires for us. That's what he is leading us toward. And that's why he gives those things to us so that we might know and so that we might understand and that we might experience that blessing. The Ten Commandments come in Exodus chapter 20. We're not gonna take the time to go through all of those just to acknowledge that the first four of those are written about our relationship with God. And the last six of those speak of how we ought to engage in our relationship with one another. Now the first couple of those I find to be particularly fascinating, especially as you think about the nation of Israel, where they were and what they had just come out of. What did they just come out of? 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt. And while they were there, the influence of the Egyptians was strong on them to the point that they sort of took on their culture and their spirit and their attitude and even their religion. And if you remember when we talked about the plagues, each of the plagues is a judgment against Pharaoh to be sure, but also against each of them against a different one of the gods of Egypt, all the way down through all 10 of those, sometimes multiple gods as a part of that judgment, all the way on down. And Israel was there and Israel had become influenced by that and it was important that they would see and understand how worthless those false gods were and how much they ought to follow after the one true God. And so it's interesting when you come to the very first of those commandments that this is what you read that you shall have no other gods before me. It's not just that I wanna be your one and only God, it's that I know where you've come from. I know what your experience has been and so I know this needs to be at the top of the list 
because you need it that much. And the second of those also harks back to their experience in Egypt. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. But what have I been showing you again and again from the walls of the tombs and the temples throughout Egypt? Images of gods. They're everywhere. It so much is a part of the center of Egyptian culture. And when the Israelites start to grumble and cry out, what they say again and again and again is, we want to go back to Egypt. We wish it was the way that it was in Egypt. And were they to go back, they certainly would come under the influence of Pharaoh once again, but also under the influence of Egyptian culture and Egyptian gods. And so there's no surprise, no coincidence that God comes right off the top and says, you'll have no other gods before me and make no images because they knew that was so, God knew that was so much a part of who they were and what their heritage has been for over 400 years. See, it only took a day to get Israel out of Egypt, but it's gonna take years and years and years to get Egypt out of Israel, to get the influence of Egypt out of who they are and the experiences that they've had and the influence that that has had over them. And it doesn't take very long to see that because if you just look at the, the nature of what happens for them, Moses goes up onto the mountain, he's meeting with God and down in the camp, they're wondering where'd Moses go? Why has he been gone so long? And they want to, or they start to lose focus, they aren't staying focused, and they decide they wanna worship, and so they call on Aaron, and they take a couple of steps, and here's what they are. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. Verse three. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Just a quick little aside here. If you were with us and you remember when we talked about the different gods of the different um, plagues, the number five had to do with the livestock and the judgment and the, the harm that came to the livestock. And the God that was being combated there by the one true God was a god, goddess called Hathor. Hathor. I've actually shown you the image of Hathor before here on the screen in a previous sermon. And she was depicted as a cow, as a calf. And here it's time and Aaron is fashioning this God in a, per, in a certain form and he chooses a calf. Coincidence? Probably not. Maybe, but nonetheless, fashioning it with a tool. He's intentionally forming it in the way that he did. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Talk about blatant blasphemy. God is the one who brought them up out of Egypt. He's the one that performed all of those miracles. And now the people in just a brief period of time are throwing in the towel. They're not staying focused on all of the things that they'd seen on all of the things that they should have known at this point, and that's going to come back to haunt them in a big way, as it should. Of course, it's easy for us to shake our heads at the, or at the Israelites and say, how foolish of you, how short-sighted of you to not stay focused, to not see the good, to form that idol. But we know how that happened for them, don't we? 
because it happens for us. Our idols aren't gonna look as the same as the idols of ancient Israel look to them, what they fashion and form, but we've got our own things that pull us away from the true God, from the worship that we ought to be pursuing. We've got our own things that keep us from staying focused on God and serving and worshiping in the way that we ought. And we need to also consider very seriously how we are saying ourselves, God, I don't need you. Something else, maybe just myself, has accomplished for me the things that I wanted to have accomplished. I brought myself up out of my own Egypt. And how harmful that is on our spirit and on our soul. The Bible has not been given as some kind of a killjoy list to keep you from what is best. It is there to keep us staying forward or to keep us staying focused on what God has done and on his goodness. It's why we need the scriptures. It's why we need worship. It's why we need one another as reminders for one another. It's as we celebrate, as we gather together, that we are encouraged and inspired and continually pulled in and it helps us to stay focused. Some of you have come back fairly recently to the church in general because you've been away for a long time and you know that you were not able to stay focused on maybe what was a faith of years ago as you were isolated and as you cho chose to walk away. And that'll be the detriment and the danger for all of us and some of us are experiencing that even now. Even though we sit here, we are far away in our heart and in our spirit and we're not staying focused on where God would have us to be. When the pressures rise up, that is a thing that is going to assist you in being where God would have you to be and overcoming the pressures to walk away and to walk off into things that are gonna be harmful. So then there's one more essential for when the pressure is on, and that's to step forward. <clears throat> Let me give you a little bit of a timeline to what Israel is on here. This might be news to you, even if you've read this passage before, if you've heard about Moses and the wandering in the wilderness before, this is probably gonna be news to you, at least that's what I'm finding with a lot of people. So Israel comes out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they're now into the wilderness, they're into the desert, and it takes them somewhere two to three months to make their way down to Mount Sinai. Two months, three months out of Egypt, they're at Mount Sinai. They stay at Mount Sinai for the next 11 months, right there. They camp there, I told you there's that vast expanse that just kind of out from the base of Mount Sinai, maybe right there for all we know. So for the next 11 months, they're there and, and a lot transpires while they're there. In fact, Exodus chapter 19 through 40, that's all the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus and the first 10 chapters of Numbers all happen during those 11 months while they're there at Mount Sinai. Lots going on. So you've got the giving of the law while they're there. You've got the establishment of the tabernacle. You've got uh, the giving of all of the offerings and the very intense description, very precise description of what the tabernacle is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. You have Moses calling the people to give so that they might be able to construct the tabernacle. Then you have Moses saying, please stop giving because we have everything that we need every pastor's favorite passage. And then you've got uh, them talking about the setting up of the sacrificial system. You've got the, here's how you're supposed to celebrate the festivals and so on. A lot takes place during those 11 months while they're there. Now it's time to pick up and move. And so they do. And for the next month or so, they travel from Mount Sinai, camping sometimes along the way. They travel on to a place called Kadesh Barnea. When they get there, they spend the next 
38 years at Kadesh Barnea. Give or take, just a little bit, slightly. So this idea that they wandered around in the wilderness, that many of us have grown up kind of thinking constantly on the move throughout the wilderness for this whole 40 years, that's probably not the way that it went down. They were a little more stationary. And when they get to Kadesh Barnea, interestingly enough, they're very close to the promised land, probably in the single digit miles away from the promised land. Excuse me. They're almost there. All they need to go and do now is to go on in. That's it. That's all left. This left is to go on in and to take this land. That's what would be desired for them. So what happens? Now we're in Numbers 13. Remember I said all the way through Numbers 10. They're at Mount Sinai. Now they travel on. Now we're at Numbers 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. There's the attitude. There's the spirit. That's where things are supposed to go that I'm giving to the Israelites. Down to verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? There's a lot he wants to know. How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? <clears throat> Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. If you know the story, you know that 12 men went out as spies or <clears throat> scouts into the land, one from each of the different tribes of Israel. They go into the land, they see indeed, this is awesome land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a place that you would want to go and you would want to live. And they also notice though that there are people there, big people, like giant-sized people. And so when they bring the report back, these 10 or 10 of them who went said, there is absolutely no way that we can go into the land. The people are too strong, they're too big. We would just be defeated if we went. So we cannot go. See, they'd forgotten the power and the provision of God. They were not staying focused. They could not see the good. They could not remember that God's intention was that they would go and take that land. They shrunk back on their own, 10 of them. Two of them didn't. What were their names, remember? Joshua and Caleb. They say, no, 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 wait a second. If the Lord's with us, this is something that we can do. We can go. But the people disagreed. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Surprise, surprise, surprise. They're grumbling again. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? They're still thinking it. They're 18 months or so into this experience and they're still wanting to go back to Egypt. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Talk about a vote of no confidence for poor Moses. What was his approval rating? Not very good, obviously. But Joshua and Caleb, they stayed focused on the goal. They knew that God was with them. And so here's what they say. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. 
Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. That makes all the difference in the world. The Lord is with us. Do not be (coughs) afraid of them. You would hope that this would be some sort of a Braveheart moment where the people would be like, you're right, we can go, let's go. Freedom, milk and honey. Steak and nachos, whatever. I mean, you're anticipating that you can have in the land, the goodness of the land that they can go. So was it a brave heart moment? Verse 10, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Stoning them. Are you kidding me? After all of that, see the Israelites had the opportunity to step forward into God's purposes for them, just miles from the promised land. But all they could see were the obstacles. All they could see were the problems. And so for the next 38 years, they're gonna stay right there. And then even when the people do get to go into the land, those who lack the faith, those who weren't putting their trust in God in these moments would never make it into the promised land. They would die somewhere along the way. And the thing that's keeping the people from entering the promised land is a lack of willingness to step forward into what God had for them. And I just have to wonder what our lack of willingness to step forward into what God has for us is keeping us from. See, I'm afraid too often we might say, well, we serve a God who loves everybody. Everything's great. He's just a God of grace. And so, yeah, he's got these things that I I can read and I know that I'm supposed to do certain stuff and and live certain ways and that those those ordinances would be good for me also. But if I don't, I mean, God's still God. He's still gracious. Everything's still gonna be fine. And the importance of me going and taking the ground, taking the land, it's, you know, like if I do, it's great. If I don't, it's not a huge deal. Maybe because we don't have the perspective to see 38 years into the future to see what impact our lack of obedience now in the moment, our lack of concern for following after the purposes of God in the moment, what that is all about. So when the pressure is on and we're making our choices, we don't feel the life-altering implications of our decisions. But friends, every decision has an implication. There are implications There are things that are happening or are not happening because of the choices that we make. So there is no time like the present for when the pressures rise up, for when the temptations to go here, to go there, to throw in the towel on this or to ignore. It's never been greater to see the good, to see and be reminded of the things that God has done for us that he's provided for us again and again and again. And that alone should inspire us to be faithful to him because he's been so faithful to us. No time like the present to stay focused on what God is calling us to do and where he'd have us to go and how it is that he would have us to live. No time like the present to step forward into the things that God would have us to do, things that we know through the scriptures, things that we know through the spirit that prompts our hearts that, Maybe we should go. Maybe we should jump into a group. Maybe we should get involved here or involved there. Maybe I should speak to this person. All of these sorts of things. To step forward, even if it requires something great of us, 
for the sake of experiencing the blessing God has in store because God has in store for us just as he did the Israelites our own promised land. Now yes, ultimately promised land is a picture, it's a type, it's pushing us forward to the idea of heaven itself. But there's also the experience of our own sort of promised land in the midst of obedience right where we live. There are implications for the choices that we make. Is God gracious? Absolutely. Will God work together for good? The problems that we come to experience, even the self-inflicted problems? Yes, he will do that too. But it's not to say that there aren't implications, that we're not missing out on the opportunity to serve faithfully, to walk wholeheartedly, to experience the greatest abundance of what God has in store. I'm thankful for the way that God showed himself over and over and over and over again, even in the midst of people who grumble, who can't find the good, they can't stay focused so that we might learn and so that we might grow. And that's what this is. This is a major lesson to teach us so that we would know the direction that God would have us to go. And I pray that we would be people who would be faithful enough to see the good, to stay faithful, and to step forward for the purposes of God being accomplished in our lives and the lives of those who are around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you for the fact that you care for us. You care for us so much as you did the nation Israel that you are constantly providing for us in abundant ways. Help us to be people who see the good, who respond to the good. Help us be ones who stay faithful, who, who recognize the fact that you're speaking to us through your word, through prayer, through your spirit. There's something that you're trying to say and Lord, help us to be people who would be faithful to what you're calling us to go and to do and then to be willing to step forward, to just get out of our comfort zone and off our couches and, and out of ease and take the step that might require our time, that might require our resources, that might require our efforts, that might require us to set something else aside so that we can follow more fully and completely after you. And we'd be people who step forward and experience the fullness of all that you have in store for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.